This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. I bring you greetings in the name of our Lord and Jesus from Mountain Valley Church in Edgewood. It is a, a good friendship, a great friendship that I've been able to develop with Grant since I've moved here. My wife and I moved here in 2017. She's right over here. And uh, took the position there at Mountain Valley and I quickly joined the Gospel Coalition and Grant was like, wait, that's not normal for that church. And uh, so we've had many opportunities to uh, study together and pray together. And um, we've dreamed about doing collaboration as a church. And uh, uh, this kind of became the first step. Uh, was Grant was heading to Chicago and he asked me to speak. And I said, well, I know that you are very protective of that role in your church. And so, brother, I consider it an honor to be able to be here with your flock. And so uh, it, is, it is a joy to be here this morning with you. One of the things he had asked me to do as we were talking about different collaboration and things like that was to share with you something that we as a church, Mountain Valley, have been studying recently. And so <clears throat> we, during the month of July, we set aside four weeks to go through Four Psalms, Psalm 12, 13, 14, and 15. The focus of our study through those Psalms was specifically on prayer. Really wanting our church, our family, to really learn how to pray Scripture. How to pray the words that David prayed, or pray the words that I believe Christ prayed. And so we are going to be looking at Psalm 15 this morning. Um, I've asked Gary and Bruce, they're going to help me by passing something out. Now, as you first get this, if you, if you got the announcement this past week about reading Psalm 9 through 15, this might make a little sense. But if you didn't, or you didn't get the opportunity to, you're going to think that this is just a paper that I gave to my four-year-old daughter and she just drew all over it. But it's not. There's some, there's some logic to it. I'm going to... Alright, so this works. So, I'm going to explain this and then I'll read our passage. Then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. So, uh, I know one of the things that they tell you in education is don't ever pass out a, paper, a piece of paper that you don't want them to look out before you talk to them, right? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm not supposed to do, but I actually want you to be looking at this throughout our time this morning. Uh, if you're not like me and you don't like to see lines and connections, then I've helped you out, okay? So the front, it looks like a mess. It is, all right? But if you want to look over on the back, I've helped all of you out who are more, I need this more organized in my thinking and visually, and that should help you in a chart form. All of the different color lines on the front side are represented by the different verses and the different colors, and we're going to get into that a little bit more here in a little bit. Those far two columns on the far right side 
I will be addressing here in my introduction. But let's go ahead and would you stand out of respect for the reading of the Word of God. I'll be reading Psalm 15 and I'll be reading and preaching this morning from the English Standard Version. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning And Lord, we are broken. We live in a world that is broken. In a country, in a state. Father, in a community that knows brokenness. And Lord, having been in that brokenness, sharing in that brokenness, participating in it, Lord, this past week. We come this morning and we need to hear your voice. We are desperate for you to speak to us this morning through your word. And so God, I pray this morning that you would do what I cannot do, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take the words that make it to our ears and they would be moved to our hearts. And our hearts would love you more, would praise you more. Father, that we would be more like your son. Father, I do pray for Cedar Springs and their church. Lord, for Grant as he is traveling back, Lord, and he'll be here back home tomorrow, Father. And I know that, Lord... They look forward to his return, and so I pray that you would bring him home safely with his wife. I pray that you would have blessed his time in Chicago, and that you, you would use it greatly and mightily for the growth of the kingdom here in the East Mountains. Father, hide me behind the cross this morning, and we pray these things in your precious son's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> How many of you remember... Or grew up in a church where they used something like this. Now I'm showing you the back cover so you don't see it. Because if I showed you the front, you would, see, you would know exactly what it is. Anybody want to take a guess? It is a hymnal. This one is a, a Baptist hymnal. And, uh, but yes, this is a hymnal. And um, you might remember if you grew up that it was, it was different than seeing words on a screen, right? And, and uh, you hear the worship leader get up in the in the Sunday service and say, turn to him 
4.45 and the organ starts to play and the piano starts to play. And if you're like 12 or younger, you might be saying, what in the world are you, what are you talking about, right? And, uh, but they would start, they would, uh, you, you know, everyone would turn to 4.45 and they'd start singing sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, right? Or maybe another thing that the song leader would do is when it comes to the last line or the last verse, if you grew up in a, a, a more traditional setting, you know that they also called these stanzas, right? And so if you uh, begin that last stanza, the song leader might be leading in a song like 227, Take My Life and Let It Be. And he would come to the last stanza and he'd say, sing this last verse, this last stanza as a prayer to the Lord. The book of Psalms has a lot in common with a modern day hymnal. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the book of Psalms was to Israel and the early church what hymnals are to many churches and many Christians today. They're lyrics that can be sung individually, corporately. You can sing them when you have music. You can sing them when you don't have music. You can pray You can sing them as a prayer, or you can open up these lyrics. Uh, Some of these songs that we sang this morning are beautiful prayers. You could cry out a single line, or you could recite an entire psalm. There's a lot in common between the psalms and the hymnal. One example that is uh, pertinent for this morning is, I don't know if you remember this, if you, if you remember hymnals, you can go to the back of the hymnal and there's a section in the back of the hymnal called the Topical Index of Hymns. How many of you remember that? Just raise your hand real quick. Just so I know who I'm talking to. All right, so a good number of you. Um, if you don't, essentially all of the Psalms are categorized by a, a particular topic. So you could look in and, and see songs about victory. Uh, in that would be the classic song, Victory in Jesus. Uh, or you could sing songs about um, the security of a believer or repentance or salvation or prayer. And, and uh, maybe some of the most common sections that we see in hymns are the Christmas section. Uh, all of the songs that are Christmas songs are lumped together in in this hymn, they begin on hymn number 76 and go to hymn number 118. Or, if this is a particular church's flavor of doing things, there's also a patriotic section where you can sing so, patriotic songs, right? And so, so they've, they've grouped the editor of the hymnal, no matter what denomination it's a part of, the editor of the hymnal has, has grouped these hymns, these songs together by their topic. They put them in similar blocks. Just as the editor of the hymnal has done that, so also has the editor of the Psalms. Now, every single one of these hymns could stand on its own, but all of them are also put in a group. The challenge is that when we come to Psalms is that it's the same thing that has happened. And we typically, most Christians, typically read Psalm 17 and say, oh, that's a great psalm. 
but they forget Psalm 17, or specifically this morning, Psalm 15 could also be, and I want to present to you this morning that it is a part of a group of a larger section of Psalms. The psalmist has done these same groupings. One classic example is Psalm 120 through 134. These are called the Psalms or the Songs of Ascent. Ascent referring to an uphill journey that was made to Jerusalem each year for the festival. So as uh, these Hebrews, as the, Israel peop- as the Israelites in the Old Testament going to the city of Jerusalem, going to the temple, would journey for the different festivals, they would, they would be walking through some, some rocky roads, and, and they might come upon someone who's struggling. And they would put their arm around it, and, and they would just start quoting one of Psalm 120 through 134. Or they would start singing, and that other person would start singing with them, and it would encourage them on their journey to the temple. You can see this in other sections as well. And this morning, I think we find Psalm 15 is the conclusion of one of these groups. So, in much the same way, Psalm 15 stands on its own. But when you look at it as a part of a group put there by an editor put there by an intentional compiler of these psalms. And if we learn to read these psalms together, they become richer and thicker. Now, I'm not talking about like a secret meaning that you can't see. I'm simply talking about being students of the Word. This is what happened to me over the last several weeks, over the month of July, as I was reading Psalm 15 and studying it and meditating on it. And I heard one of our elders at our church speak on Psalm 12, which talks a lot about the lying tongue. And I thought, wait a minute, I've seen that. And I started thinking, wait, it's in Psalm 15. And then in Psalm 13, and in Psalm 14, as each one of our our elders were were sharing in these different psalms, and and I I started to to think, wait a minute, let's start making some connections. And so so this front sheet was born. So I am the kind of person, I like to see things connected, and so I'll draw lines, and I'll I'll, I'll make markings. And so I I started to draw some of these lines, and, and... and there's sometimes, I'm going to be, I'll be honest, there's sometimes when you try this and you say, you know what, this is leading me down a dead end. But there's other times when it's not. And you begin to see the beautiful, rich teachings of the text of Scripture. So I want to start from the beginning of, of this journey that I, I started to see. And it kind of started with some repeating words. And if you look on the back of your paper, they're on the far right, the, far, the, the two columns on the far right. Because in the Psalms 9-14, there, there are a few words that strategically show up identifying this group. The word forget appears in 9-12. 9.17, 9.18, those verses are listed there for you. 
Psalm 10, verse 11, Psalm 10, verse 12, and Psalm 13, 1. The word see appears in 9, 13, 10, 11, 10, 14, 11, 4, 14, 2. And, and, and there's, a, there's a, a large, you say, well, you're just kind of pulling words out of the air. There's a large absence of these words on either side of this grouping. There, there's, there's a large absence of uh, these specific words in Psalm 1 through 8 and Psalm uh, 16 and following. They're there occasionally, but not in this intensity. And then the last one is the children of man. In Psalm 11 and 4, Psalm 12, 1, 12, 8, in 14.2. And this kind of led me to start seeing, okay, is it possible that Psalm 9-14 through 14 is a block with 15 kind of being the capstone, 15 kind of being the antithesis of most of what we see in 9-14. through 14. And if you were uh, able to read even just once 9-15 through 15 this past week, you probably would have noticed that Psalm 15 is completely different. On one side, Psalm 15 is terrifying. And on another side, it's a breath of fresh air. Because you can read Psalm 9 through 14 and read all about the children of man and see the brokenness of the children of man. And 15 shows us something different. Start at Psalm 9 and read to Psalm 14 and you start to, maybe by the time you get to the end of Psalm 14, you start to ask this question. What gives? The children of man are arrogant? Self-satisfied? They seek a good time? They're oppressive and domineering? They have no desire for God. They're merciless. They're impure. They're troublemakers. And they're immoral. It doesn't take long in reading Psalm 9 through 14 to say, yeah, no wonder the world is so broken, right? Even worse, if this is true, and as Bible-believing Christians, we believe it is, amen? Can I, can I say this this morning? If 9 through 14 is true, we're screwed. And and maybe you're thinking, I'm not that bad. Uh, The verse we read this morning, Romans 3.23, in that passage, that passage, if you look at it, is highly informed by Psalm 14. I believe it's more than Psalm 14. It's this section, Psalm 9 through 14, is what is informing Paul's words because he quotes from Psalm 14 when he says, no one is good, no, not one. And Paul uses this Psalm, Psalm 14, to condemn every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth except one. Here in Psalms, we see the psalm open by telling us about a blessed man. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. I don't believe like many that 
David is writing this, and it's kind of like, here's a way that you can be blessed. Or, blessed is the man or woman that does this. Someone is talking about blessed is the man. A very specific man. And in Psalm 15, we see the description of this man. And this leads me to, if you wanted to, at my church, here's what I do. I help our people by giving them a sermon in a sentence. Our big idea this morning is this. We must boast in Christ. Psalm 15 breaks down as a pretty easy three-point sermon. As you see this morning, you can see the question in 15.1, the answer in 15.2 through 5b, the, answer, the promise in Psalm 15.5c, and this morning we're going to add in the response and look at some observations for life. So let's look at Psalm 15.1 as we begin looking at the question of Psalm 15. I don't know about you, but... I enjoy watching the Olympics. How many of you have been watching the Olympics over this last week and a half? Yeah. The, I think the number over the years that I've, I've seen and talked to people ha- has, has shrunk, has diminished, and I'm not sure why, but I, I'm an Olympic junkie. I love watching the Olympics. The swimming, and um, I grew up, my mom was a big, we always had on gymnastics, and so I'm not really, uh, I'm kind of, Tired of gymnastics, but it's great. You know, I love the camaraderie and the pomp and circumstance of the opening, uh, the opening ceremonies and the, the pageantry. But before all of these athletes get to the games, they have to train. They have to sacrifice. They have to give up certain foods and give up time with family and friends. They have to compete alongside others. And one of those specific competitions that they have before they get to the Olympics is called the Olympic Trials. If you know anything about the Olympic Trials, the Olympic Trials could be wrapped up in asking the question, do I have what it takes to compete with the world's best? Who will compete at the Games? This is the central question of the Olympics. Who will compete at the Olympic Games? Psalm 15 is asking the same question with regards to something far more priceless than an athletic competition. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 15 asks and answers a question that is at the heart of the unfolding narrative of Scripture. In fact, this question is not at the heart just of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, but it's at the the heart of, of the New Testament as well. It's at the heart of Christianity. Who will be with God? Certainly throughout Scripture, it comes in different forms. But it's who will be with God. This 
question that stands at the center of Scripture isn't the same question that stands at the center of everyone's life, even amongst Christians. It's possible to be at a church on Sunday and have not been concerned with the question, who will be with God? Some philosophers, they don't even have that at the top of their list of questions. Their their question is more like, what is the purpose of life? Some athletes or fitness enthusiasts try to answer a different question altogether. Uh, The question of the fountain of youth. What is it? What is the key to a long life? Many in culture try to answer the question, what is the key to happiness? But David and the rest of Scripture are consumed with the question, who will be with God? I point out to you that David answers the question in Mosaic covenant terms. He answers the question by pointing to the dwelling place or or asking about the dwelling place. Who shall dwell in your tent or who shall dwell on your holy hill? The tent is a reference to the tabernacle and the holy hill is a reference to Many would say the mountaintop at Jerusalem, and I don't think they would be wrong. But could it be pointing to something greater? Look back, one of those lines, look back to Psalm 11, verse 4 through 7. Psalm 11, verse 4 through 7, it tells us, where is this tent? Where is the holy hill? The Lord is in his holy temple, verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven his eyes see his eyelids test the children of man the lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup for yahweh is righteous he loves Righteous deeds, the upright shall see, shall behold his face. I continued reading because important to this question is not only where is God's throne, but also, as the psalmist answers here in 5 through 7, is this. He is righteous. His standard is righteous. He always does what is right. And the phrase that should scare us. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now that we know the question, Yahweh gives David the answer. And while David pens it, Can you imagine David is writing this psalm and he asks this question and then he starts to write the answer and he writes something like in verse 15, or not 15, uh, verse 2 of of Psalm 15, he starts to write, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Imagine what's going through David's mind as he's writing that. Um... Not me. 
And, and, then, he, and then he says, who does not slander with his tongue? Um, yep, still not me. Uh, but the answer comes in the form, for those of you who like to take notes and see a structure, the answer comes in the form of 12 injunctions that are put together in six couplets. So uh, we're going to go through these six couplets this morning and don't see this long list and say, okay, we're going to be here till three o'clock. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each, about a, about a short paragraph on each of these this morning. Just enough to get us thinking. The first quality that describes the person that can be with God calls into question their conduct. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Because God is blameless, he expects us to live rightly. Or, here's the important word that the, psalm, psalm, that the Psalter uses, he who walks. It's a word that points to our daily pattern of life. It's something that, that occurs over and over and over and over again. It's not something that you just do once or twice in a week. Oh, I got it right the other day. Yeah, the other day, right? This isn't the person who gets it right when it comes to things like drugs, food, and sex, but can't control their anger. The word walks has the implication of the regular pattern of life. It's a holistic term. You see, this daily pattern, this means they aren't blameless and right when they're in public, but at home, they're clicking on pornography. It's, it's possible, to, I think you guys know this, right? It's possible to fool other people, right? It's possible to make others think that you're this really great person. It's even possible that you make those in your own home think you're a really great person. You share what's on your screen when it's good, but you would never share what's on your screen when it's wicked and evil. See, we can fool people's hearts. We can fool our spouse sometimes. Not all the time. We can fool our kids. But Yahweh's eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Sometimes when we talk about discipleship, we, we, um, in, in Christendom we, we use the phrase that, that God is not concerned with behavior mod- modification. But the problem is God is concerned about our behavior. The concern is that that behavior is what comes from the heart, as we'll see here as we move on to the tongue. The second of our six paired couplets comes when the psalmist says, the Psalter writes and speaks the truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. 
This couplet is interesting because right off the first couplet was blame, he does, is blame, walks blamelessly and does what is right. This one gives us a positive and a negative. Speaks truth and does not slander. More than the obvious of pointing out the positive and the negative, do you see what the Psalter has done here? He speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. He's connected the heart and the tongue. The Psalter is essentially saying that lies might show themselves in our speech, but they begin in our heart. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 11, when he says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. He could say this because lies start in the heart. I remember my dad, one of those sound clips that I had growing up, because my dad said it all the time, uh, it, it was like a broken record. It was a good thing, but you know, when you're a teenager, you don't always listen to that broken record. But my dad would always, he would, he would sometimes quote Jesus and he would say, for out of the abundance of the heart. And he got to the point that that's all he needed to say because I knew the rest of the phrase. The mouth speaks. A broken and divided heart shows up in our Do you see what the Psalter claimed in Psalms 12, 1 through 4? When he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Ready? David's not just speaking hyperbolically, meaning using a, 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 an exaggeration. He says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue, we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master <coughs> over us? I would encourage you, if you have time, invite you this next week to read once again Psalm 9 through 14. And what you'll notice is all of the lies, not all of, most of the lies that are identified in Psalm 9 through 14 are specifically about the character, existence, or role of God. Look at Psalm 10, 11. He, referring to back up in the Psalm, the wicked, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Look at verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? The wicked says, you, you really still believe that old wives' tale that we're all going to stand before God? Really? Because... It's lies about God. This is not to say that we don't lie about other things. 12.1 already made that clear. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You ever told someone good job and you didn't mean it? 
yeah, but that's not really a... Yeah, it is. <laughs> Have you ever told someone, you know, I, I, even as a pastor, I know I'm, I'm guilty of this. And Have you ever told someone that you'd pray for them? And, and you had all intentions of, to, uh, of praying for them. You just forgot. You got busy. Well, forgetting and getting busy doesn't excuse that you still lied. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. Because it's about his character. Contrast that to the children of man who are full of lies with the description of of God in 12.6 that says this, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And it's no wonder why Paul in that same section, Romans 2 says, Let God be true, though everyone be a liar. Included in our conduct and our tongue is our relationships. This is the third couplet. When the psalmist says, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend. Well, the last couplet that we saw, the one on the tongue, was a positive and a negative. These are both negative. Does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. Both of these are in the negative, and, and, it's, and, and on its own, this couplet really makes clear how our relationship should be. But what I find is interesting is that this couplet reminds us, and does no evil to his neighbor, that actually kind of sounds like our conduct. And takes up a reproach against his name, against his friend. That reminds us of the previous one, our tongue. And and David's writing this, and he says, in order to be in God's house, you must be a person who does his neighbor no wrong and does not lie. Certainly, this means we're supposed to do right to our neighbor, right? I, I mean, part of me reads this verse, and I'm like, well, duh. Aren't we supposed to be nice to our neighbor? Question is, why is it so difficult sometimes? While we're not spending too much time on each of these, look at Psalm 13 too. Like the enemy that exults over the speaker when it says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You know, 2020, I'm sure we're all tired of hearing about it. But we saw a lot of people who cared more about their freedoms than other people. The Psalter says the one who can be with God cares about others more than their freedom. How are we relating to those next to us? The Psalter goes on and talks about our values at an S to the end of that. Make it plural. The challenge is that it speaks about values in terms of people. Verse 4a and b, 
says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. This person turns away from the wicked so they can say yes to the ones who honor the Lord. I don't think that David is giving us the idea or God is telling us that we can't make connections with wicked with an intention of sharing the gospel with them. As much as he's more speaking about who we build our relationships with, who we align ourselves with, who we bring our alliances with. I recently read a book and one of the chapters dedicated entire uh, the author dedicated an entire chapter to demonstrating because one of the criticisms of former President Trump is that he was a narcissist. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And the challenge is when this author argues that the people we elect are the people that represent us. Which means, if our president was a narcissist, that makes our country full of narcissists. And if that speaks to how we are as a culture, then, then what does our new president and the values that this administration holds, what does this demonstrate about the culture in which we live? It's full of injustice, dishonesty, and we could go on. But there's another value shows up in our relationships or our alliances that I want to point out this morning besides politics. Well, what about the relationships we build with fictional characters? Like those on YouTube or TV shows or movies. Oh man, I love that guy. He's so cool. We talk about that guy on that TV show. Are we liking, are we drawn to those, the Psalter says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh? What characters do we like? Do they honor the Lord? Psalm 9, 10 tells us what matters to Yahweh. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This draws us to our next value, or our next couplet on faithfulness. Psalter says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. They don't have divided allegiances. This is seen in the person who doesn't cave under pressure. Culture continues to apply pressure to be its slave, to go along with what it wants until you break unless you're grounded in your allegiances. 
By the way, when I talk about allegiances, I'm not talking about the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm not talking about earthly allegiances. I'm talking about the allegiances the Bible says matter. God, our family, our community. I'm not saying this this morning uh, to sound anti-American or anti-patriotic. I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to live in the country that my father served for. For those of you who are veterans, I, I thank you. But our allegiance is not to a country. Our allegiance is to a kingdom. And while many claim to be faithful, even Christians, the first words, the opening words of Psalm 12, the Psalter looks out on all of the children of man and he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. The last couplet. I have down as the use of money. That's specifically because that's what the Psalter references. I uh, I don't think that the Psalter is going after the use of money to specifically... Um, uh, I think the importance here is this. I think that the act of, of, of worship and service is what is in question here. Uh, I don't think Psalm 15 is addressing giving to the church, but it does put into question what we do with our money as worship and service. Giving to the church is involved in our use of money. But the Psalter says this. Who does not put out his money in interest and does not take a bride against the innocent. Psalm 10. If you go back, Psalm 10, 2 through 3 says this, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In Psalm 12.5, we read, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him, the poor, the needy, in the safety for which he longs. In 14.6, the one who says in his heart there is no God, the fool, it says, you would shame the plans of the poor. Speaking of that man, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Psalm 9-14 through 14 is full of talk of oppression and the wrong and misuse of money. Rather than buying more things and putting them in interest, things that are just going to sit in your garage or even something that's going to get used once a year, the Psalter, David's answer, God is concerned with using our money to help the poor. We live in a country with so much more than, uh, we live in a country with so much affluence. If, I don't know if you knew this, but if you came to church on, on or in anything that has more than two wheels, you're in the top 2% of the wealth in the world. 
And, and I know with the current state of our country and economics, I know there's a concern because some see the rising storm of inflation and everything else. I guess that just means there's going to be more poor for us to look out for. Read Psalm 9-14 through 14 and you'll see over and over and over again the response of pursuing money over people and God wants none of it. I'm not advocating this morning that you should go out and sell everything you own. If God is calling you to do that, be obedient to Him. But to look out for the needy. The question that asks who can be with God has an impact on how and for what we use our money. How we serve and worship God. This is the Bible's answer. God's answer to the question, who will be with God? And and the promise that goes along with it is that this person that is described by these six couplets is, is not just the person that can say they will sojourn in Yahweh's tent or they will dwell on the holy hill. No, even more so, they can say with confidence, verse 5, I will never be moved. This stands in direct contrast to Psalm 10.6 where the wicked, we're told, boasts in what he does. He says in his heart, the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. The wicked says, I'm good with all of the things that I do. And yet, who is it that Psalm 12.5, we looked at a minute ago, tells us is in the safety of the Lord, is in the refuge, the poor and the needy. So here's what I want to do as we look at some responses. I want to give you a full minute. I'm going to go back to this slide right here where all six of our values are listed All six of our our answers are listed. And I want to give you a full minute to go through these. Or you can look down at your copy of Psalm 15. And and, and just simply go through each of the twelve or each of the six. And I want you to ask yourself, am I blameless? And then answer. Do I always do what is right? And then answer. So I'm going to give you a full minute of silence. Ready? Three, two, one. Okay, that was three seconds. Do we really need a full minute? I mean, if we're being honest, do we, do we need any time at all? How'd you do? If this was the Olympic Games, did you, if this was the Olympic trials, did you make it to the Games? Nope. Honestly, the result is the same for all of us. You didn't get in. But there's one who did. There's one who did. And the, starting rea- the startling reality that should jar us about Psalm 15 is we are so far from fitting this description, it doesn't even make sense. On our own, we are the children of 
man as described who are enemies of God, wicked, arrogant, self-satisfying, seeking a good time, oppressing and domineering others, having no desire for God, merciless, impure, troublemakers, immoral, Psalm 14, fools. And sometimes we say, ah, I'm not that bad. The problem is the question is not how bad you are, but rather, are you good enough? Who will be with God? Do you have what it takes? Do you meet the standard? If you remember from 2012, there was a fast man. He was from America. His name was Justin Gatlin. He was the third fastest male to compete in the 100-meter dash in the London Games. Third in the world. He went sub-10 seconds. That's fast. But he wasn't fast enough, was he? You don't compete at that level for second place. You don't compete for a bronze medal. You compete to win. And just as the Psalter paints a stunning picture of us, he paints a stunning picture of Jesus. Jesus is the very embodiment of Psalm 15. Psalm 11:7 says this, for the for Yahweh is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. And this is good for Jesus. So we, we look at this list and we say, all right, I'm Psalm 9 through 14 and Jesus is Psalm 15. Good for him. And, and I know, I know where we all want to go, but hold, just rest with me in the fact that we are Psalm 9 through 14. We are the children of man. Because the more we rest in that, when we get to the place where we're going here in a second, it becomes all the more beautiful. It means Jesus makes the cut. Jesus is the one who will sojourn in the tent of Yahweh. He will dwell on his holy hill. Not us. And yet, we so often boast about the position we hold at our job or what we do or maybe our clean home or maybe you went forward and 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 don't hear me mocking a decision to follow christ but maybe we boast well i prayed the prayer or i got baptized maybe it's about your study routines i recently had an opportunity to talk to a a friend of mine who has been on the mission field and he didn't have the response that I thought he would have because he talked about I spend this much time in prayer and I spend this much time reading the word of God and I've learned these languages and, and he was just going on and on and on and, and, and even trying to give him the benefit of the doubt I thought you are so boasting in everything other than Jesus. 
See, what makes this good news is when we consider the words of 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ takes upon Himself my wickedness, my arrogance, my self-satisfaction, my seeking a good time, my oppression and domineering of others, my having no desire for God, my mercilessness, my impurity, my troublemaking, my immorality, my foolishness, and He gives me His conduct, His speech. He gives me Himself. He gives me a relationship with God the Father. He gives me His values. He gives me His faithfulness and His act of service. When you're in Christ, you have His righteousness. Amen? There's a danger to that. And the danger is to think that, well, since I don't make the cut, but Christ gives me His righteousness, I don't have to try and achieve His character. I can kind of just take Psalm 15 and pitch it. Well, I'm never going to make that list, so I don't have to worry about it. Jesus did. See, the difference is that before Christ, you and I had no capacity No ability to live this life. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Hold your hand there in Psalm 15. But Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uses some similar wording in Matthew 7 with a similar picture that we see in Psalm 15. Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. You probably remember this story if you grew up in church. But I want you to notice the key phrase. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I skipped right over the important words. Uh, Hears these words of mine and does not do them. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Psalm 15, we're told, He who does these things shall never be moved. Jesus did them. He's the rock on which we must stand. He's the rock on which we must walk and live. He's the, wa- he's the rock on which we must conduct our lives, on which we must base, base our, uh, the realities of our heart that come out in our tongue, on, where, on, the, on the rock that we build our relationships and our values and our faithfulness and our use of money, our worship, our act of service. 
don't walk away here this morning trying to live out Psalm 15 as some kind of a checklist. We don't need another checklist. Adam's checklist was one thing long. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he failed. And, and, then, and then we were given list of ten. And Israel failed. The law was given to show who we really are. <coughs> if you're a Christian, just simply trying to do better is no more than moralism. Get on your knees and ask God to change your heart. As you read down Psalm 15 and you say, nope, 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 nope. Say, God, help me. Change my heart. Talk to him about your conduct. Talk to him about your speech and your relationships, your integrity, your faithfulness, your, your worship and your service, your use of money. But boast in Christ. For he did what we failed to do. Phillips, Craig, and Dean wrote a song. And the lyrics are pretty simple. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the humble come and give thanks. We're about to hear in a minute sing a song. And the first verse goes like this. My heart is filled with thanksgiving to him who bore my pain, who plundered the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart. Maybe that's the application this morning. Maybe what we need as we go forward is a little bit more thankfulness in what Christ has done for us. And if you're here this morning and you would like to know more about Christ and how he gives you his righteousness, he took upon himself your sin and its consequences so that when you look to him, Look, by faith in Christ to God, you might have His character attributed to you. Repent of your sin this morning. And identify yourself as Psalm 9-14 and recognize that there is one who died for you. Whether you are a believer this morning or not, won't you look to Jesus and overflow with thanks? Let's pray. Father, we are truly grateful. We have nothing to offer you. We are a whole lot worse than we want to give ourselves credit for. We have nothing. We're broken and empty. And you have given us everything in Christ. And so we come before you this morning, grateful. We come before you this morning and we confess that we have sinned.
but in Christ we have life. So Father, as we turn now and remember that sacrifice, I pray that you would use this time to be made great in our life, that we might boast in Christ alone. We pray these things in your precious and most holy Son's name.